Well done on the singing, by the way. I've been here for 25 years this fall, and I think that might have been the best OBCs ever sounded. There's hope. <laughs> There's hope. It's practice for heaven, right? I was hoping in my own mind, since I preached last week about singing, that maybe that inspired you, but I wasn't totally sure. Well, speaking of ancient history, 25 years, lots of you have heard the statement before, maybe not everyone, that's ancient history. Do people still say that? My parents' generation for sure did, and you can all at least understand the concept. When someone says, maybe you're watching a movie from the 50s, how about that? They say it in Greece, um, that's ancient history. They're saying, oh, that, that's irrelevant. That's not important anymore. That's so yesterday. Uh, that's passe. That has nothing to do with my life. Uh, it has nothing to do with people I know or care about or my family. That's ancient history. Well, guess what we're going to talk about today? Guess how relevant we're going to be? Guess how non-passe we're going to be? We're going to talk about ancient history. And I hope when we leave, we can say, that's ancient history. And know that it has to do with our lives and to know that it's great and important. Today, we're going to talk about ancient history because I have several reasons. Because Jesus wants you to know about ancient history. His opinion matters most. He wants you to know about ancient history. And he knows more than anything or anyone, and he knows what's best for us. Jesus wants you to know about ancient history. We're also going to talk about, talk about ancient history today because it will help you to be a better Bible reader. It will help you to understand the whole of the Bible better if you know this important reality about ancient history. In fact, it'll help you to understand the New Testament better if you know ancient history. And not only that, one more reason and then I'll stop. Another reason we're going to talk about ancient history today is because even the New Testament, it's written for Christians like us, expects you to understand quite a bit about ancient history in order for you to live your Christian life even in the 21st century. So I hope you're ready to look at Exodus 15 today because we're looking at ancient history that has a lot to do with people living ever since and even now. So if you have a Bible, you can find the second book of the Bible. It's called Exodus. And guess why it's called Exodus? Because it's about the Exodus. It's, let's not make this more complicated than it needs to be. If you're just joining us, welcome. We're studying the book of Exodus. I thought we could do it maybe in three or four weeks, and it's going to turn into probably more like, I don't know, 23 or 24 weeks. Uh, I just wanted to do the overview, but there's too much, and we can't just sit, stand here and read the whole thing. So we're, we're I think, five weeks into this series. Exodus is about Exodus. When you exit a room, you're leaving a room. Well, Israel, the Israelites had been enslaved for 400 years, and they had been enslaved in Egypt. So Pharaoh is the oppressor. He's the one who has them enslaved and mistreating them. It's been suffering. It's been harshness. It's been hardship over 400 years. But because God had made a promise even before that to the Israelites, we call it the Abrahamic promise, the Abrahamic covenant back in Genesis, that his people would one day enter into the promised land. That's why they're exiting. 
God is seeing fit to have it last 400 years, but then leading them to the promised land. The promised land would be Jerusalem. The promised land would be in Israel. They would go to Mount Zion in Jerusalem or in Israel, and they would go to the place that's described as flowing with milk and honey. In other words, it's rich, it's bountiful, it's good, it's enjoyable. It's a place where these Israelites can go and find rest right? Peace. We're longing for a home. The Exodus is all about that. Now, just recently, we've seen in the book of Exodus that God, yes, set the people free, and then he parts the Red Sea, and the Israelites go through on dry land, and Pharaoh and his military and his chariots and their horses that are certainly outdone and outpowered, they're destroyed. God has redeemed, that's the word, the language that's used. He's redeemed. He set them free so that they can go through and experience the promised land. Okay? So he's, he's saved them. We talk about saved in a spiritual sense, but we're going to use it in a similar, a similar sense, but the physical sense. He's saved them from the Egyptians. He's saved them from Pharaoh. He's saved them out of slavery. He's delivered them. And this is an important theme because it helps us to understand the ultimate Passover, right? They had a lamb slaughtered so that the angel of death would pass over. We just learned about that. Looking forward to the ultimate Passover, the Lord Jesus Christ, the ultimate lamb. Okay, just trying to get you up to speed and ready to go so everybody's at least ready to, ready to move through chapter 15. Are you ready to do that? I hope. Okay, Exodus 15, we're at verse 22. And I don't know how far we will get, but I've got notes that would take us through chapter 18. I'm hoping to get into 17, okay? Because we have a leadership meeting after church today, and uh, I'm looking forward to Jimmy John's. So, okay. Exodus 15, verse 22. Then Moses said, excuse me, then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. Notice, then Moses made Israel set out, and it's like that in the Hebrew original language as well. It's time to go, guys. You all want to stay here and keep singing, right? Because that's what we learned about last week. It's time to close your hymnals. It's good to sing praises to God, but it's time to close the hymnals because we can't just stand here all day and sing praises to God. As good as that is, we need to head toward the promised land. Now it's it's time to leave. So he makes them leave. Verse 22 goes on to say, they went three days in the wilderness. So they're on their way, journeying to the promised land and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Mara because it was bitter. It wasn't drinkable. Therefore, it was named Mara. Verse 24, and the people grumbled against Moses saying, what shall we drink? Now, I need to break the news to you that this is going to get old. You're going to hear grumbling so often that you're going to want to grumble about it. This is like going to be an ongoing theme, grumble, 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 and complain. And you're going to think, can we get done with Exodus because I'm grumbling about grumbling. It's grotesque. It's ugly. They've gone from singing praise to God. You did the unthinkable. We're free. You, 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 you slaughtered our enemies because our enemies are your enemies and vice versa. And it's glorious and grand and awesome and wonderful. Grumbling. It's meant to be ugly. It's meant to be bad. I'm looking for a sermon title. From song to stench, from blessing God to cursing God, from praise to 
putridity. That's my favorite one so far. Or from blessing to cursing. We'll have a vote afterward. You can text the church. Don't do that. But it's, it's just meant to be disgusting. It's meant to be ugly. Verse 25 says, And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. It wasn't like a special, you know, ancient life straw. I mean, there's, there's no natural way. Sometimes commentators try to explain this in a natural. It's a miracle, right? Just like there have been miracles so far. Tells him to do something that seems irrelevant, and now the water is drinkable. God has been doing miracles in the book of Exodus. Miracles are things you can't explain naturally. They're extraordinary. They're miraculous by definition. That's what happens here. God takes care of them, so they have water. Verse 25 goes on to say, There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, If you will... Look at this carefully. If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. Did you see what's going on there? If you obey in all the ways you need to obey, then everything will work well for you. Why might that be important for me to slow my speech down and say, did you notice that? That's law. That's right. And it's going to keep being restated. It's restated throughout the whole Old Testament. It's restated throughout the New Testament. As long as you do what's right perfectly, then everything will go perfectly for you. And, And in principle, that's true, and it's always been true, and it always will be true. Now, more about that later. (laughs) Because we know how this is going to go. We know how it went with Adam. We know how it goes with us. We know how it goes with Israel. And Israel is meant to picture this for us. If national Israel obeys God perfectly, then they deserve the promised land. It's meant for us to see that and understand that and to say... There's no way they can earn the promised land based upon their behavior. So there's got to be another way. Similar to us as Christians. There's no way we can keep God's law perfectly, personally, and perpetually as he requires so that we can enter into the ultimate promised land, the new Jerusalem. So there's got to be another way or it can never happen. But I want you to make sure you're seeing this as it comes up again and again. It's restated. And we'll keep seeing it restated. And it's designed to have us look elsewhere than to ourselves, for the Israelites to look elsewhere to themselves to find the key, if you will, the solution. Okay, let's keep going. It says in verse 27, Then they came to Elam, where there were twelve springs of water and seventy palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. Then we're in chapter 16. They set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation seems to be escalating, intensifying. It's not just some, it's not just a group. Now the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled. Old Testament's written in Hebrew, but there is a Greek version of it. And I like the Greek word for grumbled because it's so ugly. In this case, it would be gongudzo. Gongudzo. 
Gongudzo, right? This is like, oh, that sounds like that's a bad word. Gongudzo. They're busy gongudzoing, grumbling and complaining. I know it sounds bad, but I want it to sound bad because it is bad. It's like, you know, what you have to do when you want to take your kids to Universal Studios, Orlando, and you have to take out a second mortgage on your home. And you get them there, and then what do they do? They complain. And every sane adult goes, this is about the stupidest thing ever on planet Earth. You don't understand. So we all understand how how dumb and silly and backward and perverse and wrong it is when people grumble and complain having received great gifts. They've been redeemed. They've been set free after 400 years of enslavement. And what are they doing? Gogngudzoing. And you're like, this is disgusting. Right? It is. We're meant to read it that way. Verse 3 says, And the people of Israel said to them, This is even worse. Would, let's, let's, let's make this melodramatic, right? Would that we had died. I'd be, we'd be better off dead by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. Oh, if we could only go back to being in Egypt. When we sat by the meat pots, oh, and ate bread to the full. Life was so good in Egypt. Oh, and slavery was wonderful. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. (laughs) Being redeemed is worse than being a slave. And no doubt, they don't have very good memories. Because we know enough about what they were experiencing to know that's not even true. This is just the perversity of sin and self-consumption and short-sightedness. This is awful. They have spiritual dementia. Uh, This this is going to be the repetition, unbelief and sedition habitually carried out by the Israelites. Passover, remember how awesome Passover was and you don't get what you deserve. Now it's Passover, Schmassover. I don't even remember. It's God's fault ultimately too, we're going to see. Verse 4 says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, Here, here's why, that I may test them. See, we're going to see if they, they obey, whether they will walk in my law or not. He will provide, but it's also part of testing them to see if they see God as God and themselves as not God, and if they see Him as good because He is good, Literally, it's, we're going to find out if, if they go in the law. Are they going to walk in the law? Are they going to go in the law? Or are they not going to go in the law? Verse 5, on the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. Hmm, why? We're going to see. So, verse 6 says, So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, and in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For, notice it is against the Lord, for what are we that you grumble against us? You've been criticizing the Lord ultimately. Sure, you go after Moses, but remember, Moses is a mediator. Moses is a representative. So when they go after Moses, Moses is a spokesman. Moses is a prophet. So when they attack Moses, they're not really attacking Moses. Ultimately, they're attacking God. Then verse 8, and Moses said, when the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat and in the morning bread to 
the full because the Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumble against him. What are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Verse 9 then says, Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. How many times do we see grumbling? You get the idea. Verse 10. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory, the grandeur, the gravity, the significance of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel say to them at twilight, you shall eat meat. And in the morning, you shall be filled with bread. Notice the contrast in verse three. We loved being enslaved when we were filled with food. And the Lord's going to say, that's not even true, but I am going to fill you. I am actually going to do what you have created in your own imagination about slavery. I, as the redeeming, setting free God, I'm going to fill you. It's a play on words. It's meant to be seen. Then it says at the end of that verse, then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. Which is an important refrain. Now, to point out the obvious... They should already know that he's the Lord, their God. He's already made himself known extraordinarily. They already know. They've already seen. They've already seen an an, an amazing, astounding, tangible, verifiable, glorious, historic ways. But God is going to keep letting them know. I'm not like the gods of the pagans. I'm not like the gods that human beings form out of metal or clay or wood themselves and bow down and worship them. I'm not like those gods. I'm not like the gods of the Egyptians. I'm not like the gods of the nations. I'm not like the God of your imagination. I'm going to show you and show you and show you that, as it says, I am the Lord, your God. It's important. He's different. He's distinct. You've already seen it and you'll keep seeing it. There's only one true living God And he alone is different from all the other supposed deities. How about verse 13? In the evening, quail came up and covered the camp. And in the morning, dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. comes from the Hebrew word. Manna comes from man. And just the word that means what? Manna. What? What in the what? 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 What in the world? What is this? It's assuming, how did this happen? What, what, you can't explain this. Where, where in the world did this come from? It's miraculous. What? They're going to eat what? (laughs) We're having what? (laughs) That's what's going on. Verse 16. This is what the Lord had commanded. Gather of it each of you as much as he can eat. You shall each take an omer, approximately half a gallon, based upon what I found out, according to the number of the persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. 
They gathered some more, some less, right, based upon family size, things like that. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. And Moses said to them, let no one leave any of it over till the morning. Verse 20, as you might guess, but they did not listen to Moses. They did not listen to Moses who's speaking for, for God. This test is a cosmic fail. Some left part of it till the morning and it bred worms and stank. Does anybody have King James? Does it say stinketh? I just like to say stinketh. Okay. And, Mo- and Moses was angry with them. The strongest word that I know of for anger. Moses, the representative of a God, is furious. It's a word for wrath. He couldn't be more angry with these people. And I'm not here to say that Moses is perfect, because we're going to see in Exodus, he's not perfect. But there's no reason to conclude here that his anger is sinful. He's leading the people. He's shepherding the people. Trying to help them to see God for who He is. And they won't see God for who He is. And I would suggest to you that there's a right place for being furious. This is a rational fury. This isn't because he had a bad day kind of fury. Okay, you all look like you could use some Christian encouragement. I don't want you to start grumbling about the grumbling. So, let's let's take a breath and let's do an important cross-reference so we can remind ourselves how Jesus relates to this whole thing. Let's connect some dots here. So if you would turn to Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy chapter 8, I want to point out to you something important about how this would relate to Jesus. And I can't help but do this. Remember, Jesus is the eternal... Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, not hard to find. Remember that Jesus is the eternal Son. So before any of this happens... There's already a plan of redemption according to Ephesians chapter 1 that's going to center on Christ. So all of this is meant to be shadowy, anticipatory, looking forward toward. And so let's make some connection here with Jesus. And we'll do this throughout the whole series. It's one of the reasons we're doing this series. And so in Deuteronomy... It does give us a commentary, a cross-reference to the text we're looking at. And then we're going to connect it to Jesus in Matthew. So I'm happy to offer you this Christian encouragement. Deuteronomy 8 verse 1 says, The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness that he might humble you. Here it is again. We've been seeing it testing you to know what is in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. That's what we've been seeing in our text. It's just worded a little bit differently. Verse 3 then says, And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know. Please notice this, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. 
And down in chapter 8, verse 16, he says something similar to that. So I think that's a helpful commentary to our text. This is to test, to see if you're going to obey God or not. And now we have a little bit more data to find out if you understand or not that man does not live by bread alone. It's so much not about the bread. It's so much not about the what bread. It's so much not about the manna. It is about God. And do you see God as God and God as all-powerful who can provide, who you should trust, who you should obey? This whole thing is ultimately about, do you know that your life, that your living is from God? Right? That's what the whole thing is about. Now, I hope you're seeing where I'm going. Israel is tested and they think it's about the bread. And they don't think it's about the word of God because quite honestly, they don't give a rip about the word of God. And it means they don't give a rip about God. That's why they're grumbling and complaining. Israel, what do you, how, how are they doing on the test? Pass, fail. Cosmic failure. And then we get to Matthew's gospel account. Matthew chapter 4, if you would turn there, that would be really wonderful because I want you to see the connections. All of these connections are on purpose by the Holy Spirit's empowerment, leading human authors. History is going somewhere. Jesus has a strategic role in the whole thing here. God is testing them. Can you figure out that you don't live by bread alone, but you live by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God? The Israelites fail the test awfully. And now we have... Matthew 4, verse 1. Then Jesus led up by the Spirit into the wilderness. Hmm. Wandering in the wilderness, similar. To be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered in verse 4, It is written, Deuteronomy, which is referencing Exodus... It is written, man shall not live by bread alone. It's not about the bread, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. I trust God. I trust my Father. I'm not going to succumb to the temptation. I know it's so much not about the hunger or about the bread. It is about God, being honored as God. How does Jesus do on the test? He passes with flying colors, right? He's successful. Where Israel is not successful, where Adam was not successful, Jesus is absolutely successful. And they're in similar kind of scenarios. You've got the garden, the garden wilderness, if you will. You've got the wilderness, the wilderness garden, if you will. And now we have Jesus in the wilderness. Guess what? It's all on purpose. He's going to pass. And let me remind you of one other thing in case you're not convinced. Who is God's firstborn son? Trick question, by the way. Don't push send yet. Don't say yet. Who's God's firstborn son? Who's God's firstborn son according to the book of Exodus? I'll just read for you. Exodus 4.22. Israel is my firstborn son. And you are all going based upon Hebrews, based upon Colossians. Jesus is God's firstborn son. And you would be right. But you have to know that Israel is God's firstborn son in a lesser sense. And Israel is not a loyal son. 
Jesus is the loyal son who is the faithful firstborn son. This is why you want to trust in Jesus. This is why you want him to get you into the new Jerusalem, into the ultimate promised land that's talked about in the book of Revelation. This historic account is designed to do different things, but one thing it is for sure designed to do is to help you to see Adam was a son. You prove that in the gospel accounts. Israel is a son. Not loyal, not loyal. Can't earn eternal life. Can't earn on their own entrance into the promised land apart from God's sovereign grace. Can't earn eternal life on your own, but you need this one who's the faithful son. Because he and he alone fulfills all righteousness. He and he alone is the true, loyal, faithful son. It's awesome. When you see it, you can't unsee it. Now, I know there are Bible scholars that say we shouldn't read the old in light of the new and the new in light of the old. I think they're crazy. (laughs) We do both. And we say, this is amazing what's happening here. What God is up to in having the drama of redemption unfold This is awesome. Hope you're with me. In a Baptist church, I'd know. (laughs) You did a pretty good job singing. You did a great job singing earlier, so maybe one day you'll at least... Never mind, I'm kidding. I'm totally kidding. I preach in churches before I can't even think straight because people are saying amen so much. So I'm careful what I ask for. Okay, let's move on. Let's move on to our text. I promised to go back to Jesus again because that's really a really good thing to do. But now we're in verse 21. We're going to transition a little bit. And in verse 21, morning by morning, they gathered it, each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. What? <laughs> right? <laughs> on the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, this is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy, unique, distinct, separate, novel, if you will, in a good sense. Holy, that's what holy means, Sabbath to the Lord. It's different from all the other days. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil. And all that is left over lay aside to be kept till morning. See what's happening. Six days, we're going to gather and eat. Don't leave any over. But, but on that last day, save some for the next day. Because on that day, you're not going to go out and pick anything up. You're not going to harvest, if you will. This is the text, by the way, that people will use to say you shouldn't cook anything on the Sabbath. But that doesn't seem to be the most straightforward reading of it. You don't go gather it. He's not, and you, you say, don't cook at all on the sixth, save some. So it doesn't even seem to teach what some would want it to teach. Verse 24, let's keep going. So they laid it aside till the morning as Moses commanded them, and it did not stink. See, it should have if it weren't by divine design. And there were no worms in it. Moses said, eat it today, for today is a Sabbath, a rest day to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath... A rest day, there will be none. So we haven't even gotten to to Sinai yet. We haven't even gotten to the Ten Commandments yet. But this is already being introduced as a reality, probably because of creation. Not just probably. But, you know, 
God is so good. What do you think they're going to do? You think they're going to obey? We're going to see some craziness. You think Pharaoh gave a Sabbath? No. Work, 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 and then I'm going to make your work harder. Isn't it weird? Isn't it strange? Isn't it perverse that what God gives is good so they can have rest? So many times human beings say, what's good and enjoyable and good for me and good for others around me, I find oppressive. The, the sinfulness of sin, not just in this case, but I'm bringing it up now, is delusional. Let me give you a good gift. I'm so different from Pharaoh. And they're like, we like Pharaoh. Ganguzo. Insane. I don't know where we were. Uh, verse 24. So they laid it aside the morning, till the morning, and as Moses commanded them, and it did not stink, and there were no worms in it. Moses said, eat to it this day, for today is the Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days, did I already read that? Okay, sorry. Uh, six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. We won't take the time to go there, but in Deuteronomy 5, this being freed from the land of Egypt and being brought out, this is Deuteronomy 5.15, is tied to Sabbath. So I want you to remember, I delivered you, you were oppressed with no Sabbath, and now you have rest, so I want you to commemorate that with a Sabbath day. We've been delivered. We've been delivered. Then verse 27 says, on the seventh day, some, if we cross-reference to Ezekiel chapter 20, verses 10 to 13, it's not as in not very many, it's as in some as in a lot. On the seventh day, some, a lot some, of the people went out to gather, but they found none. What, why, why did they do that? They think it's about the bread. Verse 28, and the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? That's probably worded on purpose that way. How long will you refuse? Back in Exodus chapter 10, verse 3, how long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? In other words, the Israelites who've been set free are acting just like Pharaoh who's anti-God. They're just acting like atheists. This is terrible. Verse 29, see, the Lord has given you a Sabbath. He's given this to you. He's graced you with this. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. Pharaoh gave you no rest. I'm giving you rest. I, I did, I, I'm doing what I'm doing so you would know I am the Lord your God. Verse 30, so the people rested on the seventh day. Then in verses 31 and following, we have the biblical author offering some commentary. So let's go ahead and look at that. Verse 31, now the house of Israel called its name manna. It was like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. I think baklava, but that's just me. Verse 32, Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer... We're going to put this in a container, in a jar. Let it be uh, an omer of it kept throughout your generations so that you may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. So what's he doing? This, I want you to memorialize this. I, I, I want you to remember this. And apparently, and it's not going to go bad. 
strangely enough, because I want you to know, and I want you to use it as a teaching tool for your children to know and others to know that God provided. God is trustworthy. God is good. God is different. God is alone, Yahweh, the self-existent one without beginning or end. Our God is totally different. Trust in him. He will take care of us. We're not even going to make it to chapter 17. So I might have over-promised at the beginning all the things we would see, why it's not bad ancient history, but why it's good ancient history. But I think you'll be okay with it. Let's look at one other passage before we wrap up chapter 16. And that would be this bread that God provides that's going to sustain them and give them life might be like a different bread. Has anybody been a Christian longer than five minutes and might know what Jesus might have said about this? Maybe not five minutes, maybe maybe five months, maybe five years. Well, it's in John chapter 6. Jesus wants you to know our Exodus passage because it's great, it's wonderful, it's about redemption, it's about, about the fact that it's not about the bread ultimately. But Jesus brings this very same thing up in John chapter 6. And so I would like you to turn to John chapter 6 so that you might understand what the bread in Exodus was anticipating, what it was shadowing. If you want to use bigger theological language, what the bread in Exodus was typifying. It's a type, the antitype, the fulfillment is Christ. Those are biblical words, by the way. Uh, They're used, for example, in Romans chapter 5 because Adam is a type of Christ. Well, the bread in Exodus is a type of the bread that we learn about in John chapter 6. This is good. This is really good. How about, and this is in in anticipation of John chapter 6, verse 30. In In 30 it says, So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? Now, I can't help myself. I want to say all kinds of things about this. I'll try to use self-control. He just got done feeding the thousands. It's not a good look. He's been showing all kinds of signs. But he'll play along, if you will. So they said to him, What sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. Like, there are fathers. And And... It's our history, and God supernaturally provided. Our fathers ate the man in the wilderness, as it is written. It's our Bible. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, earnestly, earnestly, sober-mindedly, sober-mindedly, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. I love it. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me, trusts in me, shall never thirst. Isn't it good? It's great. 
It was always meant to anticipate him. The one who would be tested and found faithful and loyal. It's always been about that. They had God provide so they could have temporal life. Jesus is saying that whole scheme, the whole system was designed not to have ultimate redemption be temporary redemption, to have hunger be temporary, hunger to be satisfied temporarily for your physical well-being. No, it was always designed to do something greater, to anticipate me, not for temporal life, but for eternal life. It's so good. It's just extraordinary. Let's finish up chapter 16 and then we'll be done. And Moses said to Aaron, this is verse 33 back in Exodus 16. And Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omer of manna in it and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations, which is intriguing because now he's actually looking forward because now we're getting into priest tabernacle talk, stuff that's not even been set up yet. He's looking forward to that happening. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. That, that's before the Torah in the tabernacle. Uh, that's looking forward way to chapter 38 even, days ahead. The people of Israel ate the manna 40 years till they came to a habitable land. See, again, it's looking forward. They ate the manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. And Omer is the tenth part of an ephah. Joshua chapter 5 verse 12 is the cross-reference. When they get to the land flowing with milk and honey, you don't need the baklava anymore. You don't need the manna anymore. He sustained them through the wilderness and then they're at the edge of the promised land. Folks, let's have the takeaway be simple enough. Ancient history by divine design, maybe not all of it, but ancient history, certain parts of ancient history by divine design is intended by God to help us to see the significance of the fact that he is wise, that history has been going somewhere. It's been a drama of redemption. None of it's been luck, good or bad. And it's all going to culminate and does culminate on none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Next week, we'll talk more about the Sabbath and we'll hear Jesus say things like this. Come to me, all of you who are heavy burdened because of the requirements of the law, and I will give you Sabbath. I will give you rest. Even the Sabbath is designed to look forward to the ultimate Sabbath. The book of Hebrews refers to Jesus as our Sabbath. Doesn't get any better quite honestly. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for the fact that we have redemptive history to look to, to be amazed by, to stand in awe of. Thank you for not holding our sins against us as fellow grumblers if we're trusting in the ultimate Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in His name we pray. Amen. May the Lord bless you as you go. Have a wonderful day.